Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. All right, Tony, there he is. Tony's going to come up. He's going to read the scripture passage for today. It's a great passage today, and it's from the Gospels. And whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to stand together. And we stand because it's our way of recognizing that Jesus is the living word of God in our midst speaking to us. And so let's open our hearts and hear from Luke 24 today. A reading from Luke 24. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. While they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? They stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas replied, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place there over the last few days? He said to them, what things? They said to him, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago. But there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came to us saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who told them he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women said. They didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds kept you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road, and when he explained the scriptures for us? They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying to each other, The Lord really has risen. He appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. The Gospel of the Lord. All right. Tony, thank you for reading that. My goodness, I love that passage. Like it is loaded with all kinds of uh, just layers of implications. I mean, in that passage, there is theology, there is community, there is redemption, there is the surprising presence of Jesus slipping in in places where we least expect him to show up. 
And so I want to take a few minutes and talk about that passage today. We've got a little bit of ground here to cover more than we typically do for the sermon portion of our gatherings. And uh, that's because I want to reflect a little bit on that passage and use it to set up our conversation around house churches. And then we'll take some time to actually meet our house church leaders and get ourselves all set for next week when we begin house churches. If you are new around here and you have not heard it yet, there's a whole vision for these house churches. There's rationale behind it. There's a, a model for it. There's a vision for it. And, uh, and here's basically the logistics of how it will work. We're going to gather here the first three Sundays of every month. And then on the fourth Sunday, we'll split into five mid-sized communities around our area. And you'll hear a lot more about that logistically later on this morning. But that allows us a chance to be present to one another in smaller groups. I know so many of us are hungry for relationships, want to get to know others, or are looking for deeper connections, and this allows us a way to do that. It also allows us a way to more broadly distribute what it looks like to lead and to be the body of Christ. You know, there are so many people in our community who are gifted, who are passionate, who are called to provide a ministry of presence to others, and there's just only so many roles we can have on a Sunday morning like this, and so this gives us a chance to exponentially scatter those roles to invite people into using their gifts for the body of Christ. And then finally, it allows us a chance to be present to our neighbors, to get a sense and to discern what does it look like to love this community, to serve this community, to be aware of both the opportunities and the possibilities and the resources that exist within this group of people and our larger community, and then to find the intersection of us in our wider neighborhood that we might serve our neighbors well. And so uh, when we gather for these house churches, it'll be a simple worship time together. We'll pray. We'll go through some scripture. Uh, we'll take communion together in various ways. It will look different from house church to house church. And then we'll have a potluck meal that we all share together. Um, and so we just could not be more excited about what's coming with house churches. Let me uh, begin by just reflecting on this passage and how it might set up our, our way of thinking about this. Uh, about a month ago, Sarah shared uh, about the shared identity that we have as the new family of Jesus. And because of that shared identity, we all belong in the Father's house of love. And if we're gonna live under the same roof, then we also have a shared commitment to one another. This isn't just something we do on Sundays and then we scatter back to a, a, a separated life, but instead we live our life together in meaningful ways. We make commitments to one another. We walk alongside one another. And then last week we talked about the sharedness of the neighborhood, the sharedness of the concern and the dreams that we have along with our neighbors. We and all of our neighbors care about having good schools and clean air and affordable housing and jobs and all of those things. And so we get to dream for our neighborhood with God uh, because we all share that neighborhood. And then finally today, the shared meal. The shared meal that sustains us, the shared meal that Jesus shows up around. And so that's what we'll talk about this morning. Uh, when these followers of Jesus are walking away from Jerusalem and to Emmaus, if we go to verse uh, 13 there, they're walking away from Jerusalem and they're talking to each other. And one of the things I love about this passage is there's like some humor baked into it. I think even the words of Jesus that have some harshness in the way we might hear them, I just wonder, I have a sneaking suspicion there might have been a bit of a smile on his face as he said some of those things. And so they're walking away from Emmaus. 
They're walking, sorry, they're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking toward Emmaus, and uh, they don't know yet what has happened on this day. What day is it? It's Easter Sunday, but they don't know it. What they know is that Jesus died two days ago and that Jesus has not <laughs> come back to life as far as they're aware. And uh, so they're walking away. It's resurrection day, but as far as they know, it is a day of grieving. It is a day of sadness, and we see that in the text. Their faces are downcast. You can hear the disappointment in their voices when they said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And uh, I think one of the things happening here is that life sometimes becomes very disappointing. Sometimes there are questions we hold. Sometimes there are expectations we have. Sometimes there are hopes that we bring, and they do not work out the way we thought they would. And I don't know, this is not in the text, I'm speculating here, but I just wonder, why is it that on this day they decide to go take a seven-mile walk away from Jerusalem and to Emmaus? Jerusalem that is the center of their faith, the place where all this happened, the place where the temple was, the place where church was, the place where the faith community was, was. They walk away from all of that, and I just have to wonder, had it just become too much for them? Had it just become too much, the letdown, the losses, the disappointment, the we had hoped, the hopes deferred, the expectations unmet, and all seems lost, and so they walk away from it. And we do this in our lives. We walk, it just becomes too much. We walk away from it. Here's the good news. When we walk away from all that we knew about God, guess who shows up on the walk with us? <laughs> I mean, it could not get better news than that. Walk away from the faith community and Jesus goes on the walk with us. Uh, and so that's uh, what's happening here. Jesus shows up on the walk along with them. And then look at verse 17 here. He, he starts by playing dumb. And this is part of the, the humor to me in this passage. He shows up, he's like, what are, you, what are you guys talking about, you know? It's like, he knows what they're talking about. Uh, the whole world is talking about this, you know? But he's like, what's going on here? He does this as a way of getting them to tell their own story and how their story intersects with the story. I mean, sometimes we just have to show up in the life of another and say, what's going on? What's happening in your story? Tell me about it. What are you talking about? And we sit there and listen and we look for the opportunities, the intersection between their story and the story. And so Jesus enters into all the raw materials of the hope and the heartache and the letdowns when expectation does not match reality. And then in verse 27, he interprets for them the things that are written about himself in all of the scriptures. There is a whole lot of theology in that one verse. We could do a sermon series on it, but the, the, the real thing that it boils down to is this. I mean, everything, 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 Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and all of life that has happened in all of history, it's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all shaped by Jesus. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And so Jesus is at the center of it all. It's all about him. And then verse 28, Jesus is kind of coy. I love this. He acts as if he's going on ahead, right? They, they're ready to stop for the night. They come to Emmaus. They've walked seven miles. Jesus acts like he's gonna keep on walking. He does this to make it seem like the invitation from, for bread and for wine came from them, right? It was his invitation all along, but he's gonna make them think it's their invitation to him. And so they say, stay with us. Stay with us. And, uh, and, and so he does. And then verse 30, he comes to the table. He takes and he breaks 
and he blesses and he gives of a shared meal, of a shared meal. And suddenly they see and understand what they could not see or understand before. It's like the lights come on. God is redeeming things after all. There is hope yet. The kingdom is among us after all. And when we thought that we had been left by ourselves, Jesus had slipped in among us, right? When you show up to house churches next week and you think you're just showing up around some of these friends, some of them are are good friends and some of them maybe you don't know and some of them maybe are more awkward than others. Guess what? Jesus has slipped in among there too. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Jesus is there also. And so the real presence of Jesus shows up around the table, and it's amidst the fears and the hopes and the doubts and the disappointments. And look at how this text ends. They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem, right? Like, I don't know where in your story there's been the hopes dashed and deferred or where you've been like, I'm walking away from all of this. But when they meet Jesus around the meal, something in their hearts is set on fire and they're, they're filled again with some fresh hope to turn around and go back to that thing that they didn't think they could be a part of anymore and come with a better word that God is alive yet in the midst of this. And they, they return to Jerusalem and they speak that word together. Jesus is made known to them as he broke the bread. Jesus is made known to them as he broke the bread. And so Jesus shows up when we share the meal. And it's striking. I mean, if you've read the scriptures, you all know this. Jesus is always eating so much of his life. He must have been starving, right? Like he's always eating. Um, And uh, it's striking how much of Jesus' life happens around the meal. It's frequently that he's eating with those who would not have been invited normally, right? He's, he's sitting with those who are on the outside looking in. There's this Christian cliche, and it's not just even a cliche. It's something that I read in theology books. I read it in a catechism that was meant for kids earlier this week. I just came across it. There's this idea that God's holiness cannot be around sin. Have you heard this? Uh, God's holiness has to stay away from sin. And yet here is the incarnate word of God, holy of holy gods. And what's he doing? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners again, right? I mean, Jesus draws near to all of it. He's not afraid of any of it, and he loves a good meal. He's so open to eating with anyone that he's accused of being a drunkard or glutton because he's always eating. It all gets off to the rousing start at the wedding at Cana. He, he takes the wine. He gives them way more wine than anyone has need of because he's interested in the party continuing, and, uh, and, and then it continues on. A little boy brings a bread, a basket, and some fish and it multiplies to feed the thousands. There's parables of drink and food and feasts and and there's Mary who's sitting while Martha is cooking. There's the Eucharist breakfast where Peter is restored on the sunrise at the beach. Jesus has a meal for him too. The meal keeps showing up over and over and over. And then there's, of course, the Last Supper, the founding meal, the meal where Jesus says, do this in the remembrance of me. And the meal that started there continues on. We see it continue on for the first time post-resurrection right here on the road to Emmaus. But the church continues this, right? They pick up this practice of sharing their meals together. In fact, the apostles devoted themselves to the prayers, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to their shared meals together. And so after Jesus' ascension, the early church kept on eating together. 
Recent research has shown the incredible value of families who eat together regularly. I must confess, this is something I think our family <laughs> could use a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, pattern in. Uh, Listen to this from the Journal of Adolescent Health. Frequent family dinners are related to fewer emotional and behavioral problems, greater emotional well-being, more trusting and helpful behaviors toward others, and higher life satisfaction. All of that from eating family meals together. Well, if that's true for the family, is it possible that it's true for the family? Right? You see what I'm saying? For the family. Is it possible that we would do well also, the church in the United States of America, to share some meals that we might have fewer emotional and behavioral problems, greater emotional well-being, more trusting and helpful behaviors toward others, and higher life satisfaction? I mean, tell me if you know a church, <laughs> this one included, that could handle a little bit of that, right? So let's share some meals together. That might be a good idea, a good place to start. Right? And so in a time, a time where the church is marred by division and scandal, yeah, we need that. Uh, it wouldn't be a sermon from Jordan these days without some Eugene Peterson, and so we're going to sit with uh, my pastor and some words that he has to say here on this topic. He says, but there is a problem. The practice of hospitality has fallen on bad times. Fewer and fewer families sit down for a meal together. The meal which used to be a gathering for families, neighbors, and the stranger at the gate is on the way out. Given the prominence of the supper in our worshiping lives, it is surprising how little notice is given among us to the relationship between the meal and our meals. Our surprise develops into a sense of urgency when we recognize that a primary, maybe the primary venue for evangelism in Jesus' life was the meal was the meal. And this is why starting next week, house churches are going to share a potluck meal together because we all get our lives saved around the meal, right? We all need saving. I mean, I don't know about you. Every week, I need some sort of saving, and it shows up as Jesus eats the meal among us. Eugene goes on to point out how often the meal became a salvation place, a redemption place in people's story, a place for healing and wholeness to come. At the meal of the disreputable Zacchaeus, the story ends with, today salvation has come to your house. At the meal where the prostitute wipes the feet of Jesus with her tears, Jesus ends the story by saying, your faith has saved you. Salvation stuff happens around the meal with Jesus. And so it doesn't surprise us then that the story, the capital S story, ends with a meal, right? Heaven comes to earth, a great wedding banquet, a great thanksgiving, and we are saved. Peterson goes on. Uh, he says uh, this, is Jesus' preferred setting for playing out the work of salvation, though, only marginally available to us? By marginalizing meals of hospitality in our daily lives, have we inadvertently diminished the work of evangelism. And go to the next one for me, Sienna. Our frequent way of giving witness to salvation is verbal. I think this is fascinating. He says, we address evangelism words to people we do not know or don't know very well, but it is the devil's own work to detach the language of salvation from the setting of salvation, to separate words from personal relationships, to make salvation a cause or a project that can be conducted as efficiently and impersonally as possible but the gospel will not permit it. <laughs> Straight fire coming from Eugene here, right? right? And gosh, isn't that true? 
Look at this. We find the architect of salvation going about his salvation work in the thick textures of place and person, and to a surprising extent in the setting of a meal. It is virtually impossible to be detached and uninvolved when we share a meal with someone. And so the meal remains a major way in which we can participate in the dynamics of salvation in history. But we need to be intentional about it when we realize how integral acts of hospitality are in evangelism, perhaps we will. Mm. And so what begins at house churches, we share a meal together, people who come to this church, hopefully spills over. What, what begins here at this table, this chalice, this pattern, hopefully spills over to our community and then, and then to the wider community and to our neighbors that we might continue to enter into that salvation history. On the night that he was betrayed and on the road to Emmaus and in the feeding of the 5,000 and in the feeding of the 4,000 and in Paul's description of communion, the exact same words show up in the Bible in the exact same sequence. Jesus took and blessed and broke and gave. The same sequence. And that's what Jesus does in our lives. It's the rhythm we rehearse as we enter into communion and into house churches. It's the rhythm that hopefully becomes the pattern of our very lives. Jesus takes us, just like he was chosen before the foundation of the world. He takes who we are and what we have, and then he blesses us, just like he was blessed at his baptism. Uh, and, and, and he takes who we are, and he offers us with thanksgiving to the Father, and then Jesus breaks us, just as he was broken on Good Friday, not maliciously, but that the hard edges of our lives might be cracked in the presence of one another such that healing can penetrate the things we were afraid to let anybody in on, so that ultimately Jesus may give us just as he was given for the life of the world. And so in the end, what we first offered to Christ, here's our little basket of bread and fish. Christ now offers back to us saying, this is my body. You take it and eat it. It's become more in my hands than it ever could have been in your hands. Take and eat. And so when you walk into house church next week, you're going to have a meal at the end of it. You'll find some food that was chosen by another. Thanks will have been offered over it. It's going to be broken up for a shared meal. Now it's given away for the life of many, so that what begins here becomes a pattern showing up in the meals of all of our life. I want to take a few minutes now. We're going to turn practical, and uh, I'll just ask you to bear with us, because I know this is a little bit longer for this section, but what we want to do is just give you a window into what you can expect in house churches. In just a minute, we're going to call our house church leaders and hosts up here, and I want to give you a chance to get to know them. Um, but I do want to say this. Each house church will have its own unique spin, its own unique flavor. One of the things that's fascinating is like the Roswell group, for example, currently has like more kids than adults signed up for it, right? Whereas the central house church has no kids at all because their kids aren't allowed at that one, right? Well, there's going to be a difference in how that feels. And so we're all going to engage the same scripture together. We're all going to take communion together, but it might look really different. In Roswell, communion might look like families splitting into little groups and serving one another. In, in, in Central Alpharetta, it might look a little bit more like, let's just set out this big meal and put some bread and wine in the center of it and receive communion as part of this larger meal we enter into. You know, who knows? But my point is these will all be a little bit unique, and uh, that's part of the way of contextualizing this to our neighborhoods. 